Section 46 of Ulysses. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Karen. Ulysses by James Joyce. Part 3. The Nostos. Episode 16. Eumaeus. Part 1. Preparatory to anything else, Mr. Bloom brushed off the greater bulk of the shavings, and handed Stephen the hat and ash-plant, and bucked him up generally in orthodox Samaritan fashion, which he very badly needed. His, Stephen's, mind was not exactly what you would call wandering, but a bit unsteady, and on his expressed desire for some beverage to drink, Mr. Bloom, in view of the hour it was, and there being no pump of archery water available for their ablutions, let alone drinking purposes, hit upon an expedient by suggesting off the reel the propriety of the cabin's shelter, as it was called, hardly a stone's throw away near Butt Bridge, where they might hit upon some drinkables in the shape of a milk and soda or a mineral. But how to get there was the rub. For the nonce he was rather nonplussed, but inasmuch as a duty plainly devolved upon him to take some measures on the subject, he pondered suitable ways and means, during which Stephen repeatedly yawned. So far as he could see, he was rather pale in the face, so that it occurred to him as highly advisable to get a conveyance of some description which would answer in their then condition, both of them being E.D.'d, particularly Stephen always assuming that there was such a thing to be found. Accordingly, after a few such preliminaries as brushing, in spite of his having forgotten to take up his rather soap-city handkerchief after it had done yeoman service in the shaving line, they both walked together along Beaver Street, or more properly Lane, as far as the farriers, and the distinctly fetid atmosphere of the livery stables at the corner of Montgomery Street where they made tracks to the left from thence, debouching into Amiens Street, round by the corner of Dan Bergen's. But, as he confidently anticipated, there was not a sign of a Jehu plying for hire anywhere to be seen, except a four-wheeler, probably engaged by some fellows inside on the spree, outside the North Star Hotel. And there was no symptom of its budging a quarter of an inch. When Mr. Bloom, who was anything but a professional whistler, endeavoured to hail it by emitting a kind of a whistle, holding his arms arched over his head twice. This was a quandary, but bringing common sense to bear on it, evidently there was nothing for it but put a good face on the matter, and foot it, which they accordingly did. So, babbling around by mullets and the signal-house, which they shortly reached, they proceeded perforce in the direction of Amon Street Railway Terminus. Mr. Bloom being handicapped by the circumstance that one of the back buttons of his trousers had, to vary the time-honoured adage, gone the way of all buttons, though entering thoroughly into the spirit of things, he heroically made light of the mischance. So as neither of them were particularly pressed for time as it happened, and the temperature refreshing, since it cleared up after the recent visitation of Jupiter Pluvius, they dandered along passed by where the empty vehicle was waiting without a fare or a jarvey. As it so happened, a Dublin United Tramways Company's sandstrewer happened to be returning, and the elder man recounted to his companion, apropos of the incident, his own truly miraculous escape of some little while back. 
They passed the main entrance of the Great Northern Railway Station, the starting point for Belfast, where, of course, all traffic was suspended at that late hour, and passing the back door of the morgue, a not very enticing locality, not to say gruesome to a degree, more especially at night, ultimately gained the Dock Tavern, and in due course turned into Store Street, famous for its C-Division police station. Between this point and the high at present unlit warehouses of Beresford Place, Stephen thought to think of Ibsen, associated with Baird's the stonecutters in his mind somehow in Talbot Place, first turning on the right, while the other who was acting as his fetus Akates inhaled with internal satisfaction the smell of James Rourke's city bakery, situated quite close to where they were, the very palatable odor indeed of our daily bread, of all commodities of the public the primary and most indispensable. Bread, the staff of life, earn your bread. Oh, tell me, where is fancy bread? At Rourke's the baker's, it is said. En route to his taciturn and, not to put too fine a point on it, not yet perfectly sober companion, Mr. Bloom, who at all events was in complete possession of his faculties, never more so, in fact, disgustingly sober, spoke a word of caution ray the dangers of Nighttown, women of ill fame and swell mobsmen, which, barely permissible once in a while, though not as a habitual practice, was of the nature of a regular death-trap for young fellows of his age, particularly if they had acquired drinking habits under the influence of liquor, unless you knew little jiu-jitsu for every contingency, as even a fellow on the broad of his back could administer a nasty kick if you didn't look out. Highly providential was the appearance on the scene of Corny Kelleher, when Stephen was blissfully unconscious, but for that man in the gap turning up at the eleventh hour, the finis might have been that he might have been a candidate for the accident ward, or failing that, the bridewell, and an appearance in the court next day before Mr. Tobias, or, he being the solicitor, rather old wall, he meant to say, or Mahoney, which simply spelt ruin for a chap when it got brooded about. The reason he mentioned the fact was that a lot of these policemen, whom he cordially disliked, were admittedly unscrupulous in the service of the Crown, and as Mr. Bloom put it, recalling a case or two in the A Division in Clanbrassel Street, prepared to swear a hole through a ten-gallon pot. Never on the spot when wanted, but in quiet parts of the city, Pembroke Road, for example, the guardians of the law were well in evidence, the obvious reason being they were paid to protect the upper classes. Another thing he commented on was equipping soldiers with firearms, or sidearms of any description, liable to go off at any time, which was tantamount to inciting them against civilians, should by any chance they fall out over anything. You frittered away your time, he very sensibly maintained, and health, and also character besides, which the squander mania of the thing, fast women of the demimonde ran away with a lot of LSD into the bargain, and the greatest danger of all was who you got drunk with, though, touching the more vexed question of stimulants, he relished a glass of choice old wine in season, as both nourishing and blood-making, and possessing apparent virtues, notably a good burgundy, which he was a staunch believer in. Still, never beyond a certain point where he invariably drew the line, as it simply led to trouble all round, to say nothing of your being at the tender mercy of others, practically. Most of all, he commented adversely on the desertion of Stephen by all his pub-hunting confreres but one, 
a most glaring piece of ratting on the part of his brother medicos under all the cirques and that one was judas stephen said who up to then had said nothing whatsoever of any kind discussing these and kindred topics they made a bee-line across the back of the custom-house and passed under the loop-line bridge where a brazier of coke burning in front of a sentry-box or something like one attracted their rather lagging footsteps stephen of his own accord stopped for no special reason to look at the heap of barren cobblestones and by the light emanating from the brazier he could just make out the darker figure of the corporation watchman inside the gloom of the sentry-box he began to remember that this had happened or had been mentioned as having happened before but it cost him no small effort before he remembered that he recognized in the sentry a quantum friend of his father's gumley to avoid a meeting he drew nearer to the pillars of the railway bridge someone saluted you mr bloom said a figure of middle height on the prowl evidently under the arches saluted again calling night stephen of course started rather dizzily and stopped to return the compliment mr bloom actuated by motives of inherent delicacy inasmuch as he always believed in minding his own business moved off but nevertheless remained on the qui vive with just a shade of anxiety though not funkyish in the least though unusual in the dublin area he knew that it was not by any means unknown for desperadoes who had next to nothing to live on to be abroad waylaying and generally terrorizing peaceable pedestrians by placing a pistol at their head in some secluded spot outside the city proper famished loiterers of the thames embankment category they might be hanging about there or simply marauders ready to decamp with whatever boodle they could in one fell swoop at a moment's notice your money or your life leaving you there to point a moral gagged and garroted stephen that is when the accosting figure came to close quarters though he was not in an over sober state himself recognized corley's breath redolent of rotten corn juice lord john corley some called him and his genealogy came about in this wise he was the eldest son of inspector corley of the g division lately deceased who had married a certain catherine brophy the daughter of a louth farmer his grandfather patrick michael corley of new ross had married the widow of a publican there whose maiden name had been catherine also talbot rumor had it though not proved that she descended from the house of the lords talbot de malahide in whose mansion really an unquestionably fine residence of its kind and well worth seeing her mother or aunt or some relative a woman as a tale went of extreme beauty had enjoyed the distinction of being in service in the wash kitchen this therefore was the reason why the still comparatively young though dissolute man who now addressed stephen was spoken of by some with facetious proclivities as lord john corley taking stephen on one side he had the customary doleful ditty to tell not as much as a farthing to purchase a night's lodgings his friends had all deserted him furthermore he had a row with lenehan and called him to stephen a mean bloody swab with a sprinkling of a number of other uncalled-for expressions he was out of a job and implored of stephen to tell him where on god's earth he could get something anything at all to do no it was a daughter of the mother in the wash-kitchen that was foster-sister to the heir of the house 
or else they were connected through the mother in some way. Both occurrences happening at the same time if the whole thing wasn't a complete fabrication from start to finish. Anyhow, he was all in. I wouldn't ask you only, pursued he, on my solemn oath in God knows I'm on the rocks. There'll be a job tomorrow or next day, Stephen told him, in a boys' school at Dalkey for a gentleman usher. Mr. Garrett Deasy, try it. You may mention my name. Ah, oh, God, Corley replied. Sure I couldn't teach in a school, man. I was never one of your bright ones, he added with a half-laugh. I got stuck twice in the junior of the Christian Brothers. I have no place to sleep myself, Stephen informed him. Corley, at this first go-off, was inclined to suspect it was something to do with Stephen being fired out of his digs for bringing in a bloody tart off the street. There was a doss house in Marlborough Street, Mrs. Maloney's, but it was only a tanner touch and full of undesirables. But McConaughey told him you get a decent enough due in the Brazen Head over in Wine Tavern Street, which was distinctly suggestive to the person addressed a Friar Bacon for a bob. He was starving, too though he hadn't said a word about it. Though this sort of thing went on every other night, or very near it, still Stephen's feelings got the better of him in a sense. Though he knew that Corley's brand-new rigmarole on a par with the others was hardly deserving of much credence. However, how dignaris malori miseris, sucererat disco, etc., as a Latin poet remarks, especially as luck would have it, he got paid a screw after every middle of the month on the 16th which was the date of the month, as a matter of fact, though a good bit of the wherewithal was demolished. But the cream of the joke was nothing would get it out of Corley's head that he was living in affluence and hadn't a thing to do but hand out the needful. Whereas... He put his hand in his pocket anyhow, not with the idea of finding any food there, but thinking he might lend him anything up to a bob or so, in lieu so that he might endeavor at all events and get sufficient to eat. But the result was in the negative, for, to his chagrin, he found his cash missing. A few broken biscuits were all the result of his investigation. He tried his hardest to recollect for the moment whether he had lost as well as he might have, or left, because in that contingency it was not a pleasant lookout. Very much the reverse, in fact. He was altogether too fagged out to institute a thorough search, though he tried to recollect. About biscuits he dimly remembered. Who now exactly gave them, he wondered, or where was, or did he buy? However, in another pocket he came across what he surmised in the dark were pennies. Erroneously, however, as it turned out. Those are half-crowns, man, Corley corrected him. And so, in point of fact, they turned out to be. Stephen, anyhow, lent him one of them. Thanks, Corley answered. You're a gentleman. I'll pay you back one time. "'Who's that with you? "'I saw him a few times in the bleeding horse in Camden Street, "'with Boylan the bill-sticker. "'You might put in a good word for us to get me taken on there. "'I'd carry a sandwich-board. "'Only the girl in the office told me they're full up for the next three weeks, man. "'God, you've got a book ahead, man. "'You'd think it was for the Carl Rosa. "'I don't give a shite anyway, so long as I get a job, "'even as a crossing-sweeper.' Subsequently, being not quite so down in the mouth after the two and six he got, he informed Stephen about a fellow by the name of Bags Comiskey that he said Stephen knew well out of Fulham's, the ship handlers, 
bookkeeper there used to be often round in Nagel's back with Omara and a little chap with a stutter, the name of Tig. Anyhow, he was lagged the night before last, and fined ten bob for a drunken disorderly and refusing to go with the constable. Mr. Bloom, in the meanwhile, kept dodging about in the vicinity of the cobblestones, near the brazier of coke in front of the corporation watchman's sentry-box, who, evidently a glutton for work, it struck him, was having a quiet forty winks, for all intents and purposes, on his own private account, while Dublin slept. He threw an odd eye at the same time now and then at Stephen's anything but immaculately attired interlocutor, as if he'd seen that nobleman somewhere or other, though where he was not in a position to truthfully state nor had he the remotest idea when. Being a level-headed individual who could give points to not a few in point of shrewd observation, he also remarked on his very dilapidated hat and slouchy wearing apparel, generally testifying to a chronic impecuniosity. Palpably he was one of his hangers-on, but for the matter of that it was merely a question of one preying on his next-door neighbor all round, in every deep, so to put it, a deeper depth, and for the matter of that, if the man in the street chanced to be in the dock himself, penal servitude with or without the option of a fine would be a very rara avis altogether. In any case, he had a consummate amount of cool assurance, intercepting people at that hour of the night or morning. Pretty thick that was, certainly. The pair parted company, and Stephen rejoined Mr. Bloom, who, with his practice eye, was not without perceiving that he had succumbed to the blandiloquence of the other parasite. Alluding to the encounter, he said laughingly, Stephen, that is, "'He's down on his luck. He asked me to ask you to ask somebody named Boylan, a billsticker, to give him a job as a sandwich man.' At this intelligence, in which he seemingly evinced little interest, Mr. Bloom gazed abstractedly for the space of half a second or so in the direction of a bucket dredger rejoicing in the far-famed name of Iblana, moved alongside Custom House K and quite possibly out of repair, whereupon he observed evasively, "'Everybody gets their own ration of luck,' they say. Now you mention his face was familiar to me. Believing that for the moment, how much did you part with?' he queried. "'If I'm not too inquisitive.' "'Half a crown,' Stephen responded. "'I dare say he needs it to sleep somewhere.' "'Needs!' Mr. Bloom ejaculated, professing not the least surprise at the intelligence. "'I can quite credit the assertion, and I guarantee he invariably does. Everyone according to his needs, or everyone according to his deeds. "'But talking about things in general, where,' added he with a smile, "'will you sleep yourself? "'Walking to Sandy Cove is out of the question. "'And even supposing you did,' You won't get in after what occurred at Westland Rose Station. Simply fag out there for nothing. I don't mean to presume to dictate to you in the slightest degree, but why did you leave your father's house? To seek misfortune, was Stephen's answer. I met your respected father on a recent occasion, Mr. Bloom diplomatically returned. Today, in fact, or to be strictly accurate on yesterday. Where does he live at present? I gathered in the course of conversation that he had moved. "'I believe he's in Dublin somewhere,' Stephen answered unconcernedly. "'Why?' "'A gifted man,' Mr. Bloom said of Mr. Dedalus Sr., "'in more respects than one, and a born raconteur, if ever there was one. "'He takes great pride, quite legitimate out of you. "'You could go back, perhaps, 
he hazarded, still thinking of the very unpleasant scene at Westland Road Terminus, when it was perfectly evident that the other two, Mulligan, that is, and that English tourist friend of his, who eventually euchred their third companion, were patently trying as if the whole bally station belonged to them to give Stephen the slip in the confusion, which they did. There was no response forthcoming to the suggestion, however, such as it was. Stephen's mind's eye being too busily engaged in repicturing his family hearth the last time he saw it, with his sister Dilly sitting by the ingle, her hair hanging down, waiting for some weak Trinidad shell cocoa that was in the soot-coated kettle to be done, so that she and he could drink it with the oatmeal water for milk, after the Friday herrings they had eaten, at two a penny, with an egg apiece for Maggie, Buddy, and Katie. The cat, meanwhile, under the mangle, devouring a mess of eggshells and charred fish heads and bones on a square of brown paper, in accordance with the third precept of the church to fast and abstain on the days commanded, it being quarter tense, or if not, ember days, or something like that. No, Mr. Bloom repeated again. I wouldn't personally repose much trust in that boon companion of yours, who contributes the humorous element, Dr. Mulligan, as a guide, philosopher, and friend, if I were in your shoes. He knows which side his bread is buttered on, though in all probability he never realized what it is to be without regular meals. Of course, you didn't notice as much as I did, but it wouldn't occasion me the least surprise to learn that a pinch of tobacco or some narcotic was put in your drink for some ulterior object. He understood, however, from all he heard, that Dr. Mulligan was a versatile all-round man, by no means confined to medicine only, who was rapidly coming to the fore in his line, and if the report was verified, bade fair to enjoy a flourishing practice in the not-too-distant future, as a tony medical practitioner, drawing a handsome fee for his services, in addition to which professional status, his rescue of that man from a certain drowning by artificial respiration and what they call first aid at Skerry's or Malahide, was it? was, he was bound to admit, an exceedingly plucky deed, which he could not too highly praise, so that, frankly, he was utterly at a loss to fathom what earthly reason could be at the back of it, except he put it down to sheer cussedness or jealousy, pure and simple. Except it simply amounts to one thing, and he is what they call picking your brains, he ventured to throw out. The guarded glance of half-solicitude, half-curiosity augmented by friendliness, which he gave at Stephen's at present morose expression of features, did not throw a flood of light. None at all, in fact, on the problem as to whether he had let himself be badly bamboozled, to judge by two or three low-spirited remarks he let drop, or the other way about, saw through the affair, and for some reason or other best known to himself, allowed matters to more or less. Grinding poverty did have that effect, and he more than conjectured that high educational abilities, though he possessed, he experienced no little difficulty in making both ends meet. End of section 46. Recorded by Karen.